Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of our Lord. The Lord said to Moses in Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, putting on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. The same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Some of you know this and some of you don't. Um, The uh, United Methodist Church follows something called the Revised Common Lectionary. And what the Revised Common Lectionary is, it's a three-year cycle of uh, biblical passages um, that we all read together and preach on together. And each Sunday... Um, There are four passages to choose from. There's an Old Testament passage, a Gospel passage, a Psalm, and a New Testament passage. And uh, one of the strengths of having this lectionary is it forces the preacher to uh, preach about stuff that uh, maybe they don't want to preach about. Um, Maybe left to our own devices, we might just preach from uh, our favorite Gospel all the time. And so when I made the decision to follow the Old Testament lectionary readings this fall and to go through the book of Exodus, um, I was pretty excited. There are many great stories 
Um, they got a psych to study. There's the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, manna and the wilderness. These passages cried out to me, begging to be preached. This morning's passage is a little bit different. Um, if I'm honest, this morning's passage is kind of creepy. It kind of sounds to me like a horror movie. It takes place at night. There's this plague of the firstborn, this shadowy figure let loose called the destroyer. The passage has phrases like, you must slaughter them at twilight. Roasted over the fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. And then, then there's all that blood. All this missing is a grinning clown with a red balloon. I've always found the Passover story to be dark and unsettling. Even when I set it in its proper context, even when I realize that it's, it's the eve before uh, God finally liberates the Hebrew people from bondage, still, it presents to me an image of God I don't entirely find comforting. You know, the God of wrath, the one who has to be placated with all that blood. I just didn't understand it. I found it all a little too creepy. Until, until I was invited to participate in a Passover Seder. Um, and when I say invited, I actually mean I kind of invited myself. Um, our friend Ethan was having a Passover Seder, and I said, I'd really love to be a part of this. Um, I've never been to one. I've always wanted to experience one. I want my kids to experience one. And he was really gracious and, and hosted us. In fact, he said, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the important things about Passover is sharing it with your neighbors and, um, and teaching them the story of, uh, of the Exodus from Egypt. And so uh, he gladly made room for us at the table to celebrate Passover with him. And so uh, I did my homework beforehand. Got on Wikipedia and learned all about Passover and like, um, you know, all the things we were going to do throughout the night. So I could sort of prepare the kids. Here's what we're going to eat, and you're going to eat it, right? Um, and uh, and Savannah and I, uh, we cooked a, a traditional Passover dessert. We didn't burn anything down in the process, which was good. But what all the literature didn't teach me, what all the preparation didn't really prepare me for in this Sager, was just how fun it is. Passover sagers are a whole lot of fun. You've got the symbolic food that you eat through, like the egg that symbolizes life, like the bigger herbs that symbolize like um, the bitterness of slavery. But you've also got just a lot of good home cooking. Um, and then you've got activities for the kids. There are the four questions. The, the, the youngest kid who's able, which was William, uh, gets to ask the four questions. Why is tonight different than all other nights? And uh, and then they had this tradition where you uh, where you hide a piece of the matzo bread, and uh, and one of the children has to find it, and if they find it, they get a dollar. Um, and, and these traditions are meant to learn, to pass down the history to the children. Uh, and then there's uh, there's four glasses of wine or grape juice, depending on your age and your convictions, right? There's singing throughout the night. Prayers. It's time spent with family and friends, laughing and telling stories. 
You see, the actual experience of Passover wasn't dark and creepy. It wasn't for a foreboding meditation on blood and death and destruction. It's the opposite of those things. Passover was warm and fun. It was filled with eating and drinking, laughter and lively discussion, chanting and singing. All those other things, the death, the destruction, the pointless schemes of the empires of man, that may have still been going on outside, but inside there was a party. There was family. There was celebration. See, the Passover is all about celebrating in the dark. See, all this time I was focusing on the darkness of this passage, the destroyer, the blood, the plague. If we focus on the dark, we miss it. We we don't see what's really going on in this passage. Let's look at this passage again, but this time let's focus on what's going on inside. Inside the candle-lit homes of the Hebrew slaves on the eve of their liberation. Look at the beginning of this passage. 12.1 The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year, till the whole community of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share it with their nearest neighbor. Passover is a time for the whole community to share. Young, old, rich, or poor, the whole community comes get together to celebrate and to share. Everyone brings to the feast what they can. It was the first recorded potluck in history. The Jewish oral tradition, the Mishnah, teaches that on Passover, even the poorest man in Israel has an obligation to drink. Now about all that blood sprinkling. Look closely at what it says in verse 13. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you. And I strike Egypt. There's a key word here. The blood will be a sign for you. Listen, the blood is not a sign for God. God knows which houses are Hebrew and which houses are Egyptian. God can sort all that out. The blood is a sign for you. So, why did God command them to do it? Why did they need this sign? It's because it was something that they understood. You see, we don't go around sprinkling blood on doorposts these days. It's probably a good thing, right? But in the ancient world, they did. It was a common practice to sprinkle blood on your doorpost to keep evil spirits from entering your house. In ancient Mesopotamia, um, the doorposts were painted permanently red and the keyholes were painted permanently red to keep out the evil spirits. Some historians believe that the Canaanites had a springtime festival where they smeared lamb's blood on the doorpost to protect the herd each year. In other words, God wasn't inviting 
wasn't uh, inventing some elaborate new ritual. He was speaking to the Hebrews in a language that they understood. All they had known their entire lives was the vengeful gods of the Egyptians. And they were fearful and superstitious. And he was offering them comfort and protection in a way that they could relate to. With the tangible symbol that they could grasp. This is exactly the kind of thing John Calvin was talking about when he wrote that God stoops to speak to humanity in baby talk. It's called divine accommodation. God speaks to us in a way that we can understand. See, rather than this passage being about a vengeful God that needs to be placated with blood, it's about a God who creates the space for the Hebrews to experience peace and protection. A space for celebration. We see an act of love. Now look how the passage ends. Verse 14, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. There's a commandment here. There's a thou shalt here, right? You shall. Did you hear it? It's a commandment to celebrate. In my Bible dictionary, it says the Hebrew Hagag. That's translated here, celebrate. Hagag means to move in a circle. To be giddy. To celebrate, to dance, to feast. And I love this. To reel to and fro. To reel to and fro is what we're commanded to do. When I think of reeling to and fro, I think of my daughter Savannah. Whenever I'm with her like at at the mall or um, at... uh, at Walmart or something like that. We can never walk anywhere in a straight line. Because she's always like twirling and dancing and doing her ballerina thing. She's always reeling to and fro. That's what we're commanded to do in this passage. To reel to and fro. To quote a great, one of the great theological works of the 20th century, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This uh, passage could be summed up in the command to be excellent to one another and to party on. Make no mistake. This command to celebrate during the dark night of death and destruction, to reel to and fro, to be excellent to your neighbors, to keep calm and party on, even as the world outside is pitch black. This is nothing short of revolutionary, nothing short of life-changing. See, God commands his people to celebrate, even in the dark. And the Hebrew people had seen dark times. There's the Assyrian invasion, where, uh, where nine of the, of, of the tribes of Israel were lost to history forever. There's the Babylonian exile. There was the horrible reign of the Greek king Antiochus IV who forbade the Jews to practice their religion, who smeared uh, pig's blood in the temple and profaned it. There were the Romans who destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground. 
And there was the constant outbreaks of persecution in the Middle Ages. The ghettos, the pogroms, the Holocaust. Even today, the threat of annihilation hangs over Israel. And anti-Semitism is on the rise in our own country. And still, they celebrate. Still, they come together year after year, eating in one another's homes and graciously inviting us to attend and teaching their children to ask, why is tonight different than all other nights? And responding, Avadim Hayanu, we once were slaves in Egypt, but God delivered us with the mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and now we are free. Still after everything, They've been through as a people. They celebrate in the dark. You might well ask yourself, what kind of a person does that? What kind of a person continues to celebrate even in the darkest of times? What kind of a person is constantly inviting others to celebrate with them? Jesus of Nazareth. See, first century Palestine was a cruel and barbaric place. The Romans ruled with an iron fist. They squashed rebellions, crucifying hundreds of people just to make a point. Jesus was born into a world of brutality and darkness. And he never stopped celebrating. How does Jesus' entire ministry start? At a wedding in Cana. There's a party going on, and then there's a crisis, right? Uh, The party is running out of wine. We all know the story. Jesus turned water into Welch's grape juice, right? Well, actually wine, right? They, they, they were running out of wine. The party was in danger of ending. Jesus' mother looks at him and says, do something. And Jesus says, the way we all talk to our mothers, woman, my time has not yet come. Right? I would never try that with my mom. Right? But, but the Bible doesn't say this, but I know it. Mom gives Jesus a look. And then, she, and then mom looks at the wait staff and says, do whatever he tells you to do, right? And they do it. The miracle. The water is turned into wine. The party can keep going. And this wine was better than the stuff they were serving at the beginning of the party, right? He saved the best for last. Now, I'm not telling you what to do with that theologically and in your life. I'm just pointing out that it happened. Okay, Jesus' ministry started at a party. Remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19? You all know Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? Um, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was some, someone that was looked upon as a traitor, right? That um, other Jews hated because he was, he was serving the oppressor. Right? And they felt like he was swindling them. And so no one liked Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was short. Right? And so when Jesus comes into town, there's a big crowd by the road, and Zacchaeus can't see over the crowd, and so he climbs up into a sycamore tree so he can see Jesus. Right? And Jesus comes parading into town, and he looks up and sees Zacchaeus in the tree, 
You don't know what he says? Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree, right? Why? Because I'm going to your house today, right? You're having a party at your house and I'm coming. We're celebrating together. Do you think there was a Mrs. Zacchaeus? Right? Someone that is just getting the news that she's having a party, that Jesus is coming, and now she's got to cook something. Jesus was inviting himself to the party, right? And this party was life-changing. Zacchaeus changed his ways. But the observers didn't see that. Right? The people saw this and they said, look, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus was constantly celebrating with the people he wasn't supposed to. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the singers. And this made the Pharisees upset. In Matthew 11, 19, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton. Now this is slander, but it does tell us something about Jesus that the reputation would even stick. It tells us that Jesus was the celebrating kind. And he could certainly celebrate in the dark. Remember the Last Supper, right? Now, when we all picture the Last Supper, we can't help it, right? It's Leonardo da Vinci's fault, right? We can't help it. We just picture them at this long table. They're all facing the same direction with somber expressions on their face. Right? And Jesus is giving the words of institution. The Last Supper was a Passover celebration. And I'm here to tell you, those are fun. They're, we're going to be eating and drinking and laughing and celebrating. Right? Uh, Mark's Gospel says this celebration ended with singing. They were singing hymns. See, on the darkest night of his life, The night in which he was betrayed, Jesus was celebrating. Even on the cross, even on the cross, when the thief on his right looks at him sadly in recognition of his own guilt and asks, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus looks at the thief, ignoring his own hurt and betrayal. His own pain and abandonment, his own suffering and humiliation. He looks at the thief with eyes full of blood and says, there's a party tonight in paradise and you are invited. Celebrating in the dark was one of the great themes of Jesus' teaching. Think of how many of Jesus' parables revolve around this theme of celebration. Right? A king throws a banquet and invites the poor, the blind, and the lame. There are ten virgins staying awake so they won't miss the wedding party. A woman finds a lost coin and then she invites all of her neighbors to celebrate. A father kills the fatted calf because his son has returned. So many of these parables end the same way. Somewhere there's a party going on. There's a celebration. And then outside... There's someone with their arms crossed, refusing to go in. Or someone walking away sadly because they showed up too late. 
We're told that the kingdom of heaven is just like that. That it's a celebration. The inside people are laughing and singing and eating and drinking and telling stories and sharing. And outside, outside there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see it? The kingdom of God is one big celebration in the midst of darkness. The church is called to be the people who celebrate in the dark. No matter how bad the world gets, the power of sin and death, no matter how bad it appears, no matter how bad it looks like the gates of hell might be prevailing, we're called to Hagag, to go in circles, to feast, to be giddy, to reel to and fro, to be excellent to one another and party on, to celebrate in the dark. And yet, and yet, sometimes it's hard to celebrate. Now the impulse for teachers for uh, teachers and preachers right here is to lecture you, right? To say, well, the church has lost its joy. We used to be the most celebratingest people, and now look at us, right? You can go to a football game on Friday night and, and people are, are cheering and clapping, but you know, you come to church. Church should be like a football game, right? Maybe it should, preacher. Maybe you should serve nachos. <laughs> I don't think the problem here is that nobody's joyful. We have potlucks, we laugh, we pray with one another, we sing. I think sometimes, though, the darkness wears us down. Sometimes we look around the world and we see world leaders posturing and, 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 and the, 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 the stakes is the fate of the entire planet. We look at our own country and we see, we see deep divisions based on, on race and politics and, and class and religion. And then we look at our own lives we see sickness, struggle, death, unanswered prayers. And it's easy to focus on the darkness, the negativity, the hatred. And sometimes we lose the thread. I hear it all the time. Well-meaning Christian people will say, these are dark days. It's the worst it's ever been. This country is going to hell in a handbasket. We're living in the end times. Maybe it is. Maybe we are. But pessimism isn't what we are called to. Pessimism is the world job. They've got it nailed. Have you seen Game of Thrones? If you have, the altar's right here. The world has this beat on darkness and pessimism. Right? It was this secular poet, Matthew Arnold, who, who wrote during World War I, Ah, love, let us be true to one another. For this world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams so various, so beautiful, so new hath neither really joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor help from pain. 
And we are here as on a darkling plain swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight where ignorant armies clash by night. But it was the Christian hymn writer at the same time who wrote, This is my father's world. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. We've lost the thread. Yes, the night is dark and full of terrors. Yes, life is difficult. Yes, there is pain and suffering and everything else. But hear the good news. We can celebrate because he has given a sign for us. What is that sign? The blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb. It is the blood of the lamb that creates the space in our lives to celebrate. Because we are freed from sin and guilt, we can rejoice in suffering, knowing that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We can celebrate because Jesus Christ sacrificed himself to conquer the powers of sin and death. We can celebrate because the grave has lost its victory, death has lost its sting, and the night has lost its darkness. It may not look like it, It may look like evil is still winging. It may look like sin still has the world in its grips. It may look like death still has the final word. But that's the view from the outside. You see, in heaven, the party has already started. Right now, as we speak, there is a celebration going on in the throne room of God. In the throne room of God right now, the Lamb is seated upon His throne, surrounded by four living creatures. Day and night, they are moving in circles, reeling to and fro, calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In the throne room of God right now, 24 elders are carrying golden bowls filled with the prayers of the saints through the altar. And they are casting their crown before the throne of God and falling in worship and singing a new song. In the throne room of God right now, you can hear the voices of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 encircling the throne and crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. In the throne room of God right now, they are celebrating in the light. Because they see what we cannot yet see. That the dawn is fast approaching. That a time is coming when all things will be made new. When God will dwell with his people and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. They know a time is coming when there will be no more darkness. And the city will not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Because the lamb will be the lamp of the city. See, the blood of the lamb is a sign for us. That whatever we go through in life, he is with us. Still in the midst of our lives creating the space for celebration. 
God is at work even in the night. As the poet John Gay put it, shadow owes its birth to light. The blood of the lamb is a sign that we will receive in the words of the prophet, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of despair. The blood of the lamb is a sign for us that the darkness that pervades our hearts and and lives will not have the final word because the night is just a passing shadow and his glorious dawn is forever. See, contrary to what you may have heard on TV, contrary to what you may have read online, Contrary to what you may have seen out your front window, the victory has already been won and the celebration has begun. So let's join in. Let's hagog. Let's celebrate. Let's move in a circle. Let's be giddy. Let's feast. Let's reel to and fro. Let's join with the living creatures and the elders and the great multitude of angels and everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And let's say, Party on! Hope I didn't reset anyone's pacemaker. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.